Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 51, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, September the 9th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Job uh, today in uh, chapter 31, verses 24 to 40. In John's Gospel, we're uh, continuing in the 11th chapter, verses 30 to 44, and then in Acts 15, verses 12 to 21. So we're hearing more of Job's response today. This is the end of Job's response. <clears throat> First thing that he's going to condemn is idolatry. He's going to he's going to say, I, I, "I didn't do this. I've never committed idolatry." And, and he defines it in a multitude of ways. He he knows what he's talking about here. He says, "If I've made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence." If I've rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. He's already talked about being false to his wife, and now he's talking about being false to to his God by idolatry. He said, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him. I've not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent had not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I've opened my doors to the traveler. If I've concealed my transgression, as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and didn't go out of doors. He's What he's argument is here is is that that the proof that I've not allowed um, my wealth to overtake me and to rule over me is is I I don't rejoice when anybody falls low when they hate me I don't feel that way and and any and nobody has ever been around me and not not had their fill of meat what what do you want it's here I've made it available to you Surely I would carry, oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. In other words, if he would put this in writing, then I could respond to it. I don't know what the charges against me are. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. In other words, I wouldn't have any fear of answering a complaint the Almighty has against me because I know that I haven't sinned. I could come into his presence with my head held high and deny anything that's been brought against me. If my land is cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. So in other words, he, he hasn't cheated anyone. He has, he has cared for the land. He has um, repaid those from whom he let properties. And, and if not, he says, then, then let nothing grow. Of value on that place. And then we're told the words of Job are ended. So Job's words end with his self-justification. He's saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I, he's, is he responding here to the um, 
insults and the, the objections of his friends, or is his theology just wrapped up in this whole idea of, I didn't sin, therefore nothing bad should have happened to me? There's, he, he's clearly, he has a view of God that, that's not wrong, it's just incomplete, it's why at Sinai, when um, Moses says, let me, let me see your glory, God says, no, you can't do that. You can see as it passes by, you can see it from the back. And then God proclaims on his name. He proclaims that he is a God of justice. He's a God of truth. But at the same time, he, he's merciful and loving, compassionate, gracious. All the things that Maimonides talks about in the 13 attributes of God— and that are that are elucidated in that statement on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 he he finds 13 attributes of God in those two verses i've done some work on it i'm probably going to end up doing some more in the fall on the on these so we're we're getting close to i'm thinking of doing this as a series prior to um to advent so it it's it's imp- it's an important thing that we recognize more than just God's greatness, but that also that he's good, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. All those things are important when we approach the throne of grace. And yet the other side of it is, is that we've, we've got to, to get rid of the theology and the belief that there's a one-to-one correspondence between what we do and what happens to us, that we can live our lives um, in, in righteous ways and still have bad things happen to us because that's the kind of world we live in. And, and we need to, to make sure then check ourselves at the door as to whether or not that thinking, how much of that informs our lives, how much of that have we bought into, how much health and wealth, prosperity gospel have we bought into, because it hooks into our natural inclination to believe those things. So in the uh, gospel today, where we have um, Mary and Martha and Jesus, he has, he has not yet come into the village of Bethany, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So Jesus had been stopped by Martha when she came, and then um, he stayed there, and then Mary came out to meet him in that same place, and so he hadn't gone into the village yet. But when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going out to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which is exactly the same thing Mary said to him, but but or Martha said to him, but Martha added, even now, though, I know that, that God will give you anything you ask of him. But the, dif- the other difference between Mary and Martha is the way that they approach Jesus. Mary falls at his feet. She falls in worship before Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's, a, it's the the uh, word there, the Greek word that's used here is embrizomai, and, and what it means is basically the image that you would have is a horse that's really upset and snorting angry. That's that's the the word picture embrizomai should bring to mind. So, so Jesus is clearly really upset here. And so why would that be? Right. It's it's the what it was based in seeing Mary weeping and the Jews also who had come with her weeping. 
it, it has to do with grief. It, it, is he condemning grief? No, absolutely not. It, it's the frustration of one who never intended it to be this way, didn't intend for death to come into the world. It, it's, it's what we brought into the world and caused all the problems. Yet if you read um, sort of the prequel to the Chronicle, the, um, the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is um, The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. If you read that, what you'll see is, is that there's two young children named Diggory and Polly who happen to be at the beginning of a world. They happen to show up at the beginning of a world, and they brought bad things into that world. They're responsible for how messed up the world is that we know as Narnia. Otherwise, it would have been pristine. But, but these humans, these children, these innocents bring sin into that world. And so it's all because of them. And then we find out that the, this Diggory, who is the, um, the protagonist in the um, novel, is actually the professor in whose home the children are staying in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. So Diggory has been to Narnia before. He knows all about Narnia. But he hasn't been in a long time because only children can go there. And so here, that, that's exactly what you see is, is that, that Jesus is upset as only the one who was there at creation could be over the impact death has on human beings. So he asked, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. They thought he just wanted to see the tomb. Jesus wept for the pain and the grief that it caused um, this family that he loved so much. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In other words, they believe that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man that we read about in John 9, and they believe that that surely means that he could have done something about Lazarus prior to his death. And so did he love him? I think that's the question they're trying to ask. These other people said, see how he loved him because he's crying over this. And, and their response is, well, he could have come when they called him and he could have done something about it. And then nobody would be weeping here. We'd all be rejoicing. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead for four days. Well, this King James says he stinketh by this time. So the, <clears throat> Martha made a confession about Jesus early on. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. If, uh, even now, though, I, I believe that anything you ask of God will be done. Well, clearly, that this wasn't in mind. <laughs> Bringing Lazarus back from the dead wasn't in mind for her because it was beyond hope, because he had waited four days. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Now, did she understand what was getting ready to happen? Did she know that Jesus had just made a pronouncement that the next thing that was going to happen was going to be she would see the glory of God, which is the power of raising one from the dead? Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So they know that this was a prayer, that Jesus is asking the Father for the resurrection of Lazarus. And so the way that he does this gives great glory to the Father because it's clear that he goes to him first. Before he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a, what a remarkable moment <laughs> that would have been. I mean, it's just, it's almost, it, it is just beyond belief that you could see this dead man who's been bound in the linen strips that Jesus will be bound in as well, um, prepared for his burial. He had been covered in these spices that we know that they gave, that, that they came to the tomb to put on Jesus. And, and he, here comes Lazarus walking out of the tomb, the man who'd been dead for four days. Jesus calls back from the dead. And it's, you know, I've heard other people talk about this, and it's just, I have no earthly idea. It's just one of the most interesting thoughts. And that is, is that, that when he calls Lazarus, come forth, it's because if he had just said, come forth, then all the dead would have responded and come back. But he simply called one man, Lazarus. And the resurrection of Lazarus is different because he will again, he'll see death. Um, and Jesus will not after his resurrection. And also here, somebody has to unbind Lazarus once he comes forth from the tomb. And that was done in the tomb for Jesus. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful moment of love that he allows this family, the ones that he truly loved, to be the, the subject of his greatest miracle in his earthly ministry. So what didn't look like love ends up looking like the most amazing thing anybody has ever seen. In the um, letter, uh, the lesson from Acts, remember where we are. We were, uh, we've been talking about the movement of God among the Gentiles through Paul and how word gets back to Jerusalem about this. And there's a dispute over whether or not these people need to be circumcised. And so Paul has come and he's made a case. Peter has made the case for what he saw in the home of Cornelius, and now all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, the brother of Jesus, replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, after this I'll return, and I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So after this, after all these things happen, then the Lord's going to come back and he's going to repair the tent of David, rebuild its ruins. We, he's talking here about the, the temple. And, and then that the remnant of mankind, all mankind, may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name. So when Jesus goes into the temple and finds the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals there, what does he say? that my, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And so what's happened is they've set up shop and sort of run all the nations out. They can't be in the place where they can hear and observe what actually is going on in the temple because of all these people. And so Jesus is making room for the Gentiles when he does that. He's rebuking the system of profiteering on these sacrificial animals and the money changers as well. He's, he's rebuking that system, but he's also rebuking the, the temple system that, that sets up at these times and prevents the Gentiles from being able to come near to the house of the Lord and to pray in that place. And so 
when he rebukes that system, then what he's also saying is you have to make room for the Gentiles. You have to make room for the Gentiles. And so he's moved those things out of the way so that there's no impediment to them hearing the word, hearing the truth being proclaimed in this place by him. (laughs) So here, James is seeing in the same way that Peter understood what what the meaning of the events of Pentecost meant, the day of Pentecost, when, when the Spirit fell, James here finds the response and the meaning behind what God's doing because the Holy Spirit's guiding him into all truth in the same exact way Jesus promised the Spirit would guide people into all truth. And so now they have a significant decision to make, one of the very first incredibly significant decisions the church has to make, and that is, what do we do about the inclusion of the Gentiles? How do we bring them into the community? And they have to decide, is Jesus enough? That's the bottom line that they're trying to decide here. So what James says is, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And what what does he mean by troubling them? And, And what has already been said is, is that the, the, the troubling them is to keep the law that they themselves have not been able to um, keep. And so, no, so circumcision, they're going to say, no, we're going to do away with that, and we're going to put it aside. And, and so we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of get a limited um, thing about the law for them. Again, they don't think this is much more than a one-generation thing. So we're just going to, we're going to be lenient. We're going to bring them in on this level. We're going to keep things simple and straightforward for them. So write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, for what's been strangled, and from blood. So it, in the, the strangling and the blood thing go together because if you, if you eat an animal that's been strangled or if you eat the blood of an animal, what you've done, because you're going to eat strangled things, the blood hadn't been drained out of it, so you're going to be taking animal life into your body through blood, not through the eating of the flesh, but through the blood. You take that life into you. And when, so when Jesus says, you got to drink my blood, what he's saying is you're going to take the divine life into you because my blood is, is life. And so you're going to take life in when you take me in. Here, what they're trying to say is stay away from those things because you don't want to mix two forms of life. You don't want to mix a higher form of life with a lower form of life. And then to uh, abstain from things polluted by idols. In other words, don't come... Paul has to speak about this in 1 Corinthians and in other places, but but what he's saying is is that Paul says is is that, that don't worry about those things don't worry about things that are that have been sacrificed to idols because in Corinth for instance you wouldn't be able to eat anything but just know that an idol is nothing and then get over it but but what they want what, what uh, James is trying to say here is 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 that don't partake in idolatrous festivals don't partake in idolatrous meals don't you can eat with people but if they say oh this has been sacrificed to our idol so it's been blessed by our idol then you shouldn't partake of that in that situation you have to say I can't do that um, because it's been used to glorify something else and then what they talk about is sexual immorality well, there's a particular and a peculiar sexual ethic among the Jews that separated them from the sexual ethics of Rome, because there were a great many classes of prohibited sexual contact in Judaism that were perfectly fine in the Roman Empire. 
you know, you could marry your mother, you could have sex with your sister, you could do all these other things. You could, um, all of the, the, the things other than sex between a man and woman in the confines of marriage was prohibited for Jews. And so that sexual ethic they saw as, as important in separating them from other peoples. And so one of the ways that you showed the distinctiveness of the Christian life, the decision was made, was through a certain very particular sexual ethic of sex between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. And, and so everything else, then, is sexual immorality that they're very clear about this. There's not many things that they're asked to obey except for those three or four things. And they go on to say, for from ancient generations, Moses has been has, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So all this stuff is, is common knowledge wherever there's a synagogue is what he's trying to say. Now, the Jews today will make it for converts. They'll, they'll tell you, don't bother to try and convert, because then you'd have to keep 613 laws. Just keep the Noahide laws. And these are very familiar. These are things that, that fit perfectly well. And so what within the context of what James has declared here, and so here are the Noahide laws is don't profane God's oneness in any way. Acknowledge there's a single God who cares about what we're doing and desires what we, that we take care of his world. Don't curse your creator. No matter how angry you may be, don't take it out verbally against your creator. Don't murder. Don't eat a limb of a living animal. In other words, don't cut an animal's leg off and make it a three-legged animal in order that you could have something to eat. Don't steal, harness, and channel the human libido. And this is from Chabad.org. This is an explanation of that. And that is incest, adultery, rape, and homosexual relations are forbidden. The family unit is the foundation of society. Sexuality is the fountain of life. And so nothing more holy than the sexual act. So too, when abused, nothing can be more debasing and destructive to the human being. And, and Paul was very clear about that. Jesus was very clear about that. In the, in the final thing is establish courts of law and ensure justice in the world. And so the, the things that the, that the apostles decided that, that people needed to be responsible for in the law are the things that, that today they will teach those same things as the important things for non-Jews to do. They're all equally important. Now, there's, a, there's certainly a, a general agreement, let's say, among religions not to steal, not to murder, and all those kinds of things. So the, you wouldn't think you'd need a prohibition against that, although in the ancient world there, there was not a prohibition against those things. And so it raises the value of human life greatly. But it also those seven Noahide laws actually speak about animal life as well, right, and the value of animal life. You're not to, to cripple an animal simply for your own benefit. And so there's a, there's, there's a provision there that raises the uh, status of animals within, within God's kingdom and within God's uh, way of doing things. So when we look at these, what we, what we need to come to is, is that we need to come to, to the reality that, that the world isn't the way it ought to be, which is um, Job has an idea about how it ought to be. If you do the right things, then, the right, then good things happen. Um, it's also not the way it ought to be in the sense that death came into the world and therefore Jesus grieves and weeps over the impact of death on, on those of us who live in this world. And then here, what, what the acknowledgement is, is that the world has fallen. We can't fix it all. In fact, we as Jews haven't been able to do that. And so we're going to believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you'll be led into all truth. But these things aren't as obvious to you because they're so rampant in your culture that, that we need to 
to specifically tell you that these are things you need not do. They need not say anything about murder or theft or any of that. Those are crimes punishable by Roman law. So the things that are not that are not nearly as obvious are the things that they have to speak into. It's a beginning of the understanding of how fallen the world is that they have to say anything at all, that these aren't common to all mankind. But but it's a good thing that over time those things have been outlawed, and, and so there's social progress, and therefore now they only have to speak into a few things that are not common when they say, nope, the world looks like this, but it needs to look like this, and these things are dangerous for you to practice.